Hello and welcome to Act Natural. I am your host, Brian Middleton. I'm Heather Middleton. I'm Jenilee Sunshine. I'm Ross Lechner. And today we have Dr. Stephen Hayes joining us to speak about acceptance and commitment therapy. And we are really excited and honored to have you today, Dr. Hayes. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Same here. So Dr. Hayes, um, because we're limited on time, I don't want to go too deep into it, but uh, could you give us a Cliff Notes version of your involvement in acceptance and commitment therapy and why it is that it's important we're talking to you? Well, I mean, I'm a lifetime behavior analyst. You know, I was trained as a clinical psychologist, ran rats and pigeons and all that back in the day. <laughs> and I became a Skinnerian because I really bought into the aspirational goals of the human potential movement and of people like Maslow and all that. But I, I really didn't like their science and I thought, you know, Skinner's Walden too was cool. You're looking at an old hippie. I used to have hair down to my back and now I've got none, but uh, you know, the, the behavioral tradition was always, you know, trying to create a psychology that's more worthy of the challenge of the human condition. It wasn't about a narrow population or setting or discipline. It was about human psychology writ large, human functioning, human behavior. And that's the Kool-Aid I drank. And, um, you know, I, at the time, uh, behavior modification, behavior analysis was a pretty big deal, behavior therapy, and was uh, showing signs of really entering into the cultural mainstream. But uh, very quickly, uh, people kind of played whack-a-mole with that. It's kind of interesting if you go back, if you lived it, you know it, that so many issues were raised, ethical issues, who's going to control the controller, uh, you know, Skinner was very quickly being compared to eugenicists or, uh, you know, uh, behavior analysis to, to uh, mind control and brain surgery. And really good behavior analysts like Todd Risley stood up and challenged that. And at the time, the behavior therapist and the behavior analyst, behavior modifiers were all in one group and um, fought back as best they could and actually made some progress by focusing on tools you can use. And that meant, you know, if you have a kid who's really not developing well, you know, here's some tools you can use. If you have a, a phobia and you really are afraid of things that are limiting your life, here's some tools you can use. Hmm. And that did have the impact of reining back in the excesses of an era in which behavioral scientists were shoved in a corner for fear that they had technologies that were too powerful you know, the era of Clockwork Orange, yeah. of uh, fear. We are seeing an era of fear right now, also oriented towards scientists. So you, if you're not as old as I am, you have a little bit of a taste about what it was like. And it was ugly and frightening for the scientists. And I think also for those who are afraid that the uh, scientists were coming over the hill trying to control their behavior in ways they didn't like. But, you know, I... Uh, bought into the aspirational goals, but soon enough as a young academic uh, developed um, significant uh, clinical problems of my own. I mm -hmm. developed a panic disorder, thankfully, it's a good thing. It slowed me down, woke me up, focused me on, you know, maybe I don't know 
everything. Because when I used the methods I knew to use from behavior analysis, behavior therapy, and behavior modification, I might as well have gone out in front of a 100-mile-an-hour wind and decided I'd spit. I mean, it, it came right back on me, didn't really have any traction. Mm. And it was only until I went back to Hippie Hill when I went back to things that were in the water in California in the era of the, of the 60s and 70s that I participated in. Yes, I am that old. Um, that I got some traction on it. And I thought, man, this is so, so, so strange. And I tell that story in a TEDx talk. You can go and look my famous night on the carpet where I really made a transformational turn yeah. in a very short period of time. Highly recommend that TED Talk, folks. Yeah. Long enough to hurt when I stood up, but short enough to, and I look back on it to say it was almost instantaneous, I turned my life in a different direction. And it immediately had a big impact on me when I used it with my clients, it had a big impact on my clients. And I said, man, this is weird. So I spent 15, 20 years in the lab trying to work out the principles that would make sense of that. And I was working with my colleague, Aaron Brownstein, who's one of the best basic behavior analysts who ever lived. If, if you get around a basic behavior analyst, and you, to this day, you say Aaron Brownstein, they'll go, oh, Aaron Brownstein, because he's so central to the matching law and some really important things that are central to JAB types. And he was my colleague, an older guy. We ran our labs together, a father figure for me, really. And he understood what I was trying to do and put me onto equivalence. Mm. And this is before anyone was onto equivalence, really. I mean, it's been around for a while, 1972 or four or whatever, when the first study was done with developmentally disabled, but uh, it hadn't been integrated into any kind of practice, really. People weren't talking about it much. But what I thought was, what the reason Aaron gave it to me was that this might be a model of what behavioral stimuli, what verbal stimuli are. Because I'd already reached the conclusion. I'd tried to make the book verbal behavior work. I'd, you know, I'd take a transcripts of the game password to try to understand interverbals. I mean, it had gone on and on. And every time I dug into it, I realized I could do the research better just by doing it with an animal opera preparation. Yeah. Which shouldn't surprise us because Skinner actually said in the book that it has not escaped my attention that a small but meaningful verbal community is comprised by an the um, interaction between an experimental animal and, uh, uh, and uh, 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 the experimenter. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, to me, that's wrong. I think that's a mistake. It shows something wrong with the analysis. What we're doing right now is not what the bird is doing outside the window. It just isn't. I think that's an empirical fact as much as anything is. Took a while to get that as a factual statement, mm -hmm. but it was my suspicion. And equivalence opened the door. Within about four or five days, I came back to Aaron and said, I think it's an opera. I think it's just a learned opera. And I was enough of a functional, contextual meta thinker. I was more like the Don Bear wing than the push, pull, click, click uh, Jack Michael wing. Okay. You know, Jack's, the late Jack Michael just died. Wonderful, sweet man and a hero for me and, and all, many behavior analysts. But that wing was more mechanistic. And the, the radical, functional, Willard Day, Don Bear, et cetera, generalized imitation wing was not. So 20 years later, here I am with acceptance and commitment therapy, or if you're using it as a behavior analyst, acceptance and commitment training, it's still called ACT, or if you want to call it ACT training, it's fine. But yeah. uh, it's just a collection of accept 
well, I'll use the normal words. And then I'll see if I can do an instant translation. Okay. Uh, of acceptance and mindfulness processes, commitment, behavior change processes for p- purpose of producing psychological flexibility. Okay. I've never done it in real time. Let's see if I can do it as an instant translation. It's a set of methods designed to undermine the automatic repertoire narrowing effects of uh, thoughts, feelings, memories, and bodily sensations when they occur inside a rule-based system that focus on their elimination and diminishment as an attitude towards behavioral flexibility and success, and with uh, processes that focus on the motivational operations and the attentional processes that are afforded by uh, relational operants so that you can uh, deliberately create values-based habits in your life. And uh, that latter definition, I think it's not too bad. I just did it as a riff, is a, <laughs> a, a behavior analytic definition. The, the other one will reach other audiences. And, you know, the ACT folks do use, uh, and this is the first article I ever wrote in 1984, Making Sense of Spirituality. We do use terms that when they have a decent behavioral accounting enough that we can sort of see where it goes at the level of process to reach other audiences because we should never let us ourselves get into a position where the meaning of words is to be found in a dictionary mentalism doesn't come from a dictionary you can say god spirit ghosts anything you can say anything it's not a behavioral analysis to say, ooh, you used the wrong word. That's mentalism. That's bull. <laughs> mentalism is a particular way that you use words in trying to come up with a causal and functional account of behavior. And I want to be held to account for monistic, non-mentalistic. And I've done the work, the homework, the writing, the research, the theoretical development, in my opinion. Catch me if you can. If you see an error, let me know. You're actually helping me. So that behavioral psychology can take a modern approach to private events and put it into their practice in a way that uplifts the lives of those they serve. Well, and I, I, I find it wonderful that you mentioned Maslow because um, in some respects, you're honoring the spirit of what Maslow was trying to go for. You're just being more systematic than he was. Uh, and Maslow had many wonderful attributes, but one of them was that he he didn't he couldn't back up a lot of his ideas with research, and that that makes me sad. Because yeah, because he had some wonderful ideas. Which was deficient, and he actually said he, he considered himself a scientist, just like Carl Rogers and others, and did research. And I think it's fair to say they were scientists, careful mm-hmm. in their own way, but viewed it more like a science that's closer to history, let's say than it is the experimental analysis of behavior. Now, we shouldn't get too chest-thumpy about it. Cancer oh. did the same thing. Yeah. I mean, part, people inside the behavioral analytic traditions writ large, I mean, I don't know if you want to include the inner behaviorists. I do. I married the last student of uh, J.R. Cantor, my ex, Linda. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, uh, but uh, the mo- what, what he meant by that was, he couldn't see a way to get to meaning and purpose and symbolic reasoning using uh, anal- uh, Western experimental science. Yeah. Well, we, I think we've figured out a way to do that. I think relational frame theory does that. 
And I'm sorry for the chest thumpy part. It builds on the behavior of the tradition. You can put text, mans, and verbals, and also all of that into it, but then it, that'll take you to a mental age of about two and a half, and you need something to keep going. Yeah. And uh, stimulus equivalents, that'll take you up into that three, four range, but then it stops because you can't say most complex sentences only with stimulus equivalents, plus it doesn't have a process account. That's why relational frame theory exists. That's what that week was about. I mean, I just wrote a, a kind of honorific piece that's in Jayab on Murray Sidman. And he's a monster, he's a giant. But the reason I don't always say he's a monster or a giant is I was frustrated that he did not have a theory until 2000, well, 1994 and 2000. But then that theory, I'm sorry to say, hasn't really held up that well and hasn't given yeah. us a new technology. RFT is holding up really well and does give us a whole bunch of new things we can do that in careful research is showing that you can take kids who don't have a sense of self and build it. You can raise the uh, intellectual achievement, even the IQ scores of uh, neuroatypical and neurotypical children. You can measure uh, implicit uh, verbal relations, meaning just ones that are highly grooved to the point that you're no longer sort of deliberately creating it, uh, those rules. So I don't want to get too chest thumpy about it. I mean, obviously, RFT is not the answer to everything. There are flaws in it. Why? Because every single scientific theory ever developed in the history of humankind is wrong. You just need enough time. Yep. find out where it's wrong so well, and it is wrong i just but but is it a step forward yeah and, and i would argue that forward. that this is a, the tradition of good science is is saying thank you to our predecessors we appreciate you offering these ideas now let's build on those and if it turns out that that idea isn't quite right we yeah. keep testing it i mean i think a careful yeah. behavior analyst looking at peak for example and that's just one example hmm. there is no way you can look at that uh, that i can find Look at that body of research. You can criticize some of it. Okay, fine. Anyone lab, anyone study, anyone research program, yes. But I can't look at that and say, that's not progressive. I just can't do it. It is progressive. It opens doors to move people that we serve down along a developmental pathway faster and farther. Mm -hmm. If that's not improvement, if that's not what we came here to do, explain it to me. And, you know, so, there isn't a science that exists that is hanging on to 60-year-old books and saying that's the end answer. There oh, yeah. are clinical traditions that do that, but not the scientific wing. You know, the Jungians do it, the Illyrians do it, the Freudians do it. Yep. So much the worse for those traditions. The Skinnerians should certainly not do it. Certainly not do it. I mean, Fred I, would over in his grave at the very thought. <laughs> he definitely. I have a question for you in relation to ACT. Um, how is ACT different from self-help CBT and other forms of cognitive behavioral therapy? The single biggest difference isn't just the third wavy idea that it's a relationship to your private events, not just the form of them. That's true. But really, the basis of behavior analysis is not that. I mean, behavior analysis is interested in changing content, just as the second wave CBTers are. Uh -huh. Is interested in applying direct contingency and uh, associative uh, learning or classical conditioning principles, just like the first wave was. And so uh, I don't like ACT being cast only as a third wavy uh, method and that unlike 
the second wave where you dealt with only with the content of cognition, now we do with the relationship to cognition and the events that affects like emotion or affect and attention, motivation, things of that kind. I, I think that's too limited. Uh, I think what we're trying to do is create tools that you can use to move human behavior writ large. Understanding, just like Skinner said, that all forms of an organism interacting in and with their context considered historically and situationally is behavior, all forms. And we came here to explain all forms. Yep. Don't be giving me the white book over behavior and movement in a space-time reference. Yes, Skinner said that in 1938, and he also, in the same paragraph, said uh, commerce with the environment, and he never again used that definition of behavior in his writings, and that is not behavior analysis, in my opinion. And if you really think it is, okay, then you're an SR learning wing of behavior analysis. But of course, we want to see that it lands in overt behavior. Yes, I want to see that. But uh, Skinner believed you, private events were of importance and you could study, study them. The reason why everybody doesn't know that, why, as he said, that his interest in boring from within, if you read the original article where he's talking about E.G. Boring and doing a little pun about his form of behaviorism throws over the Watsonian restrictions on private events. And that's why it's radical. Yeah. That's why it's radical. Not because it's extreme overt behavior. It's the exact opposite. It's radical because when you apply behavioral principles to the scientist, the inside-outside distinction collapses. That's radical. But it's not radical in the way White Book talks about it, at least not the earlier editions, or the way a lot of behavior analysts and BCBAs talk about it. Read the foundational documents. Read the operational analysis of psychological terms. Study it. No, read Skinner. People are stop reading Skinner. My goodness, really? I, but, I've been reading Skinner recently, and and yeah, like there's uh, one of his books in the second chapter, he talked about the universe inside the skin. And it was one of the most beautiful things. I, I was just like, this guy is eloquent. And, and he definitely believes in the beauty of exactly. thoughts and feelings and emotions. And the only, and I hate how people cast him. doesn't know that is that he made a mistake with verbal behavior. He said, basically, you can study it. It's cool to study it. Go study it. But the principles that guide overt behavior and the principles that guide private events are the same, and it won't add anything in terms of the functionally important outcomes to know more about thoughts and feelings, memories, and bodily sensations, because the same set of contingencies produce both. The reason why that's wrong, and I think I can use the word wrong, is that relational operants operate on other, relation, other behavioral principles. That's an empirical fact. You can change punishers into reinforcers, reinforcers into punishers. You can do something like Mike Dewar did, let's say, put A, B, and C in the relational network of A is less than B is less than C. How do you do that? You don't have to tell them, you don't have to make up histories, etc. You can actually use a contextual cue first with non-arbitrary relations of relative size, length, thickness, etc., then use that cue in a normal arbitrary matching the sample and quote train what you think is A is less than B is less than C. Then shock the hell out of the poor uh, subjects in your experiment whenever B shows up, which is just a squiggle, it's not a letter. And then see what happens if you didn't train them that way when A and C are presented. 
If you didn't train them that way, if they're arbitrary, they have no formal properties that connect them. It's not like the orange light and the red light or the blue light and the green light. They're, they're just arbitrary. Mm -hmm. A and C doesn't arouse uh, 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 the individual, but B does like crazy, of course, because you've been shocked whenever it showed up. But if you did train them, A is less than B and less than C. If you had that contextual cue present when you did that arbitrary matching to sample, when C shows up, people scream and rip the wires off their arms. And their, their galvanic skin response is higher than the stimulus to which they've been shocked, even though they've never been shocked in the presence of it. Yeah. Give me the behavioral term for that. And don't be telling me generalization or I'm going to slap you if you're in arms rank. Because you can't save behavioral principles by trashing behavioral principles. They have a technical yeah. meaning. They're precise. That's why they're so powerful is they have such broad scope and tight application. And so there is not a name for the way that relational operants operate on classical conditioning, operate on operant conditioning. And we need a name for that. And whether you call it you know, verbal stimuli, uh, which we do, relational stimulus control, relational reinforcement control, I don't really care about the name, but I just care that people know that relational operants are, exist. That's an empirical fact as well established as any other operant in operant psychology. And by the way, if operant psychology can't say what's an operant, kill operant psychology. Take a match, burn it down. We have to be able to say what's an operant or not. We've put a stake in the ground. We've done scores of studies that say it's an operant. If you don't agree, we tear down the studies. You can't just say, well, I don't like that. I don't read RFT. That's bull. You don't get to do that in science. You can when there's a few studies and it's that little weird wing. Oh, I'm just not interested. Okay. But not when it's hundreds of studies in your tradition. No, you can't do that. And still be called a scientist, in my opinion. I'm so, sorry for my shrill voice coming out. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you've done that. When you've done that, then you say, okay, there is an operant. Now, does this operant operate under the behavioral principles? Yes or no? I think the answer is yes. Like there's too many studies. What's the name for that? Now you need a new principle. You're not explaining relational operants with a new principle. You're explaining the implications of relational operants with a new principle. Why? Because it's a new phenomenon that doesn't have a name. I mean, what do we have? A, a principle phobia? You know, it's anathema to ever find any new principles if Fred didn't say them. Do you actually want to write that down in a sentence? Do you write that down in a sentence? I say, okay, now you got a religion. Mm -hmm. That's not a science. So, sorry for my rant voice getting in here, but I'm having fun with you guys. I, I think uh, basically what's different, you asked that question long ago, is that we've taken the time to dig down to the principles of behavior change. We've tried to do the basic work and scale them into technologies you can use. And we're the only wing of the sort of modern behavior change part of CBT writ large, behavior therapy, et cetera, or I think behavior analysis writ large when it comes to rule government behavior, et cetera, if you really demand a lot of research and a wide scope that have done that. So 40 years later, I say what's different is we have a set of basic principles and tools that you can use that are linked to them and are trying to hold ourselves responsible to that original vision of creating a psychology more worthy of the challenge of human condition, the human condition, a la from rats to Walden too. Wonderful. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, 
but I'm going to kind of boil down ACT. And earlier folks, um, Dr. Hayes said RFT stands for Relational Frame Theory, which is the research that acceptance and commitment therapy is founded on. Um, but my understanding of ACT, having spent time reading it, studying, applying it to myself, helping my clients with it, helping my students. I used it as a special ed teacher. My understanding of it is it's, it's uh, discrete observable skills that you can learn that help you improve your relationship with yourself. That's, like a, that's a, a very simple boiled down. Would you say that's right? Yeah, with yourself, with your current uh, uh, physical and social context, and with your uh, history and the uh, set of uh, public and private events that that has given rise to. So yeah, if you mean by self, this broad set of repertoires, some of which are kind of in a way different selves, Skinner's right about that. Some of these repertoires almost function as if they have a life of their own, you know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so kind of you at a party versus you when given a talk are maybe a little different. But mm -hmm. yeah, I would agree with it. I like it. So then my, my question to go along with that then is, can ACT be utilized to help with your relationships? Yeah, there's, there's growing evidence on that. We know that psychological flexibility, which is our summary term for the set of processes that ACT has been targeting that come out of this relational operant thinking, interacting with contingency principles and other principles derived from evolutionary science and behavioral science. Um, psychological flexibility predicts long-term uh, the health and strength of your relationships. It's been shown that recently in the COVID era, you know, who are the families and couples that get through this without harm? Who are those that have uh, you know, model good behavior for their children, can help the children get through this horrific kind of thing without trauma, without needless distress uh, with their, uh, so yeah. Now, in terms of uh, carefully crafted uh, kind of couples and families based intervention technologies, it's a smaller set. Mm -hmm. Act started with, you know, more individual psychotherapy. I would say right now, if you summarize all of that, if you look at the controlled time series designs and randomized controlled trials, it's probably 20 studies, maybe more, something like that. If you look at the correlation longitudinal, et cetera, it's more. But for most areas of ACT uh, intervention, it's a larger set. So you're a little more on the cutting edge, but yeah. uh, not in a harmful way. And we know it takes something like uh, parent training, trying to set up good parenting practices that maintain the relationship and do a good job of raising the kids, things any BCBA is probably having to deal with at some point. Uh, the kind of things you're talking about, we're dealing with at home, but even professionally, you're dealing with it. Even if you don't have a shingle out saying couples therapy, you're dealing with couples and families all the time. Yeah. Because the people you serve are part of a family unit. Mm -hmm. And if you can't reach them, you can't help them really, or not as well as you should be able to. And there, there's really good trials showing that positive parenting and things that we've kind of learned to do that are sort of in the water in part because of the behavioral tradition, positive behavioral support, et cetera, are um, uplifted by ACT and by psychological flexibility processes that ACT encourages. Wonderful. So uh, check out the data and 
I'd say it's a little earlier, it's in the, but there's a couple of meta-analyses already in this area if, you, if you're a meta-analysis type. Now, it is true that a lot of the ACT stuff is group comparison designs. Hmm. And that's done deliberately because when you're in China, you speak Chinese. And if you, we want funding and all the rat, we got to play that game. Do I really think that's where we should stop at the level of process of change? No, I think you have to have an ideographic understanding. Not just in terms of outcomes. I don't mind group comparison designs when they go into outcomes and you have a population-based problem, like, for example, all of the kids who have a diagnosis of autism. But uh, I do uh, object to it when you're looking at processes of change. How do we get from here to there? That's inherently an ideographic question. You cannot average people and get sensible answers. And we run into this all the time as behavior analysts. We have to deal with these horrible kind of developmental milestones and kids being categorized because they, oh, you're not doing it the way normal kids do it. When it turns out there's 15 different pathways from here to there and the pediatrician doesn't know it. Some kids scoot on their butt and stand up and walk. Yeah. That's the way they do it. That's an empirical fact. Don't be putting those kids in some special program unless you know that that's not the developmental pathway they're on. So. I really am frustrated with uh, group designs being the only way, and I've written books on single case designs and all that kind of stuff, but that it's also something we should be part of. Boy, do I believe in that. I mean, I think we are vulnerable as behavior analysts if we just go single case designs, single case designs, single case designs, and then sooner or later, somebody shows up and says, where's your data? And some judge says, I'm not convinced because you, you didn't do a randomized trial. I mean, Lovas well, did a randomized trial. And why did Lovas do a randomized trial? We should be doing more of that, not less, but we shouldn't drink the Kool-Aid. I mean, don't, you know, have a, you know, a, a brain extraction. We have our Sidmans of the world that really focus on what's important, but we should also play in a way that positions us to succeed inside the scientific context we're in and also that asks questions in the ways that we need to ask them using methodological things as tools and not needlessly creating barriers between our tradition and others. Well, and I'm a, I'm a very big fan of learning from my colleagues. Um, there are several psychologists, social psychologists, clinical psychologists that I read up on and I regularly ask myself, okay, what are, what, what's going on here? Trying to understand, because I feel like if, if I allow myself to be too narrow, I'm missing reality yeah. and we, we need to be connected with each other. We need to try to understand each other. Otherwise, are we truly scientists? Well, and you're missing the friends that are out there who will actually help you. Yeah. And we, we've done a pretty bad job. I mean, behavior analysts are, for example, speech and hearing folks, a lot of them just hate behavior analysis. Oh, it's so sad. They don't want them in the schools, blah, blah, blah. We did that. Mm-hmm. Don't be blaming it. And why, you know, you, you have all these rules against mentalism. You want to make a mentalist out of a behavior analyst? Ask them why they're not allowed in the schools. Oh, they just don't believe, they don't believe in us. They don't have, they, they, they. I mean, come on, all of a sudden it's all this mentalistic stuff. And by the way, none of it points to your own behavior. Yep. It just blames and shames other professions and disciplines. So it, it's inert functionally. It's harmful in our relationships with professionals. And it is a violation of our own principles. So that what we can change is our own behavior. Yep. So, 
you know, I think, for example, it isn't, shouldn't all be discrete trial training. We can do more naturalistic training. And the RFTers, there's some who are way into that. It's fine to do discrete trial, I'm not saying. It shouldn't all be behavioral terms. We can have other ways of talking about what we do, not in a way that uh, diminishes what we know, but in a way that builds bridges to people who talk differently. As long as what they're saying makes some sense and we can get into a conversation and so on. So, uh, you know, we, we basically need to re read how to win friends and influence people. <laughs> and apply it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and apply it. <laughs> if you want to pick something uh, I really hate, it's we few, we happy few. Mm. You know, I, I, that was the lab motto at Harvard. And I get when you're trying to create something out of nothing, that speed of core might make sense. It doesn't make sense when we've got tens of thousands of BCBAs. We few, we happy few is toxic. Mm. I want to be we many, we happy many. And the way we're going to get to be that is by making friends, building bridges. Uh, when we've done that in the ACBS world, there's all these people come to us. I mean, the, yeah. David Slow Wilson's of the world, the Stefan Hoffman's of the world, the Joe Ledoux's of the world, I mean, evolutionists, cognitive scientists, Yonda Howard's of the world, you know, who are writing and doing research. They're not just doing a one and done at ABAI. They're not being paid to come and talk to us and then never pay their dues and come back on their own nickel. I'm not impressed by that. I'm sorry. If that sounds like I'm busting ABAI, I am busting ABAI because my measure for excess is the community itself gets more diverse broader and people who talk very differently from us see so much value in the way that we talk that they internalize it and now want to use it and be part of the research and development journey we're on. And okay. if, you know, if ABI can figure this out, that's great. I love the people. I love Miriam a lot. I love all the people involved. I mean, I went to every ABI convention for what, 30 years before I said enough is enough when I realized in order for me to build a place where Acton RFT could have traction, I had to create a group where people could focus on that. But and it wasn't an anti thing, it was a pro thing. And I think long run, it, we've proven that. I mean, there are more people reading more behavioral books because of the Acton yep. RFT, in my opinion. Go look at the Amazon links, see what they're reading. Oh yeah. And, and folks, just so, you know, um, just so you know, ACBS stands for Applied Contextual Behavior Science. <laughs> it says, well, the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. Oh, so, okay. Here. Association, my bad. Definition. I'll take your definition because I kind of like it. But um, <laughs> well, it's just another face of behavior analysis. It's the what I took to be the functional contextual Skinnerian wing now that we're actively building the alliance that Skinner always tried to make happen with evolutionary science. He just didn't know how to consummate it. And we have a relatively adequate approach to language and cognition. That's the only thing that's different. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I know why I made that mistake. There's actually a Facebook group called Applied Contextual Behavior Science. So yeah. <laughs> fun little relations Ooh, there. Heather, uh, you, had a, you had some questions you wanted to yes. ask Dr. Dr. Hayes. Yeah. Uh, so this is, this is shifting gears slightly, not crazy yeah. amount. Um, I, you write about it a lot in your books, but you describe it as uh, like the stories we tell ourselves. In my brain, it works better to describe it as the patterns of thought that come across in okay. my in my mind and I just wanted to kind of delve into that a little bit more and what that can look like and how ACT can help uh you know recognize those when they're happening and sure. and 
and work with the helpful ones and uh, and the unhelpful ones. You know, Skinner had this idea that verbal behavior, once it gets to a certain point, it no longer requires environmental support. And I think he was right about that. If you were the last person on the planet, if poof, everyone on the planet, every single living creature even disappears tomorrow, but you're still alive, you'll talk to yourself till the day you die. You'll think and reason and wish and plan and worry and anticipate and regret. And, you know, you'll, you'll do all those things, even though nobody's listening, nobody's reacting to it because it becomes almost a functionally independent repertoire that has influence, you probably will be able to, like the Skinner's famous story of Robinson Crusoe, you know, that marking how much water you've got left, you know, might make the difference between your survival or not, whether there's a listener there or it's just you. But, um, you know, what happens normally is this evolutionarily recent adaptation of relational operants that emerged, I believe, because of the social primates that we are, and the way that it immediately builds on and extends social cooperation. I think initially, a speaker-listener repertoire being integrated, and the way that Skinner actually laid out in that little diagram and verbal behavior, but that happened because of, I think, social cooperation. And But now we've put it on steroids. That initial extension of cooperation, bring me an apple, gives you apples, because a listener can respond similarly to the speaker and the, even the same parts of the brain light up another way to say that this is the equivalence relation the mutual the symmetry or mutual entailment that are there just in names makes a would make us more effective as cooperative groups you know then leads to all kinds of other relations you know before and after and better and more and less and better and no good good bad etc cetera, etc cetera. And it, those abilities, by the time you're three or four, you're already applying them to yourself. Kids are telling stories about who they are, who others are, where their role of life is. Are they good or bad or smart or ugly? You know, and, and it's having a punch. I mean, six-year-olds commit suicide deliberately, planfully. It's the first sentence of the Act Book, 1999. Why? Because I just want to show how the most non-functional thing that we can imagine in all of behavior happens in six-year-olds, not in three-year-olds, and arguably not in any other living organism. And so something, it's not complicated, but when you enter into that verbal world that's reflective, you know, I'm a person who will be alone forever because mama died the suicide note that that six-year-old wrote. It's at the beginning of the act book from New York Times. Um, we don't have to be very complex verbally before we know how to suffer. Mm. Can I tell you a, a, a little story and then link it off to something? We were doing some perspective taking and relational training with a person who had intellectual disabilities that were fairly severe, but verbal to a degree. And, you know, up to Skinnerian operants, but not yet really sort of relational operants in a way that was elaborated. And this is years ago, and we're doing some training and training and training. And, and, you know, things start happening, like empathy shows up, you know, mom is all excited, because for the first time ever, her son watches her drop a plate and then says, are you sad? And never had ever shown any awareness of that. You know, if it was directly to me, I'll cry, but if somebody else, it was nothing. 
and the mom's all excited, but she says something really strange is happening though. I said, what? He's getting in fights in the schoolyard and he's asking weird questions. Like what? He came home and he said, mama, what does tarred mean? Uh, our group, our research group got together and just huddled like, uh, you know, trying to hold back tears because we're bringing this child into a world verbally now where he gets to know he's on the short end of the stick. He's been called that on the schoolyard for years and had no idea that it meant he was on the short end of the stick. Yeah. And so now he's trying to address that with his fists and he's getting in trouble at school. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, would you choose not to bring him into this verbal world in which this storied self now includes things like, I'm the dumb one? Please don't get mad at me for saying that. Please don't. Because what I'm talking about is the world that boy is going to live in inside his head. I'm not saying he's the dumb one. I'm saying he's going to have to live in that world in which you have a thought like that. But don't we all have that? I'm the one who's too unlovable. I'm the one who's mean. I'm the liar. I'm the fraud. I'm the one who's too fat, too slow, who can't be trusted on. I'm the liar in chief. I mean, I don't know what it is, but every single person listening to me has a list like that. And by the way, is probably not sharing it with almost anyone except for the people who are very close. And even then, by pulling some punches, there are a few things you're not going to say. There are a few things you're going to go to your grave with, secrets that are that bad, that weird, that odd. Yeah? You got them. So, you know, that. what are we going to do with that when we're, we're, you know, living inside a repertoire that includes private events, that all includes that kind of stuff. And what the access trying to do is get a little bit of distance or separation from those thoughts so that they don't impact our behavior so much and our attentional and emotional and motivational processes. Try to create a context where that it gets a little safer to actually share so we can hide less, we can share more. Because it turns out that sharing our vulnerabilities and our values creates intimacy. And if you're not sure about that, think about a time when somebody has honestly told you something about their scary thoughts, their critical thoughts. And I bet you, you felt compassion and connection for them. And I bet you, you felt a little space where it was a little easier for you to share those things. So, you know, it's why ACT leads naturally. It isn't just acceptance like it's purely a private event acceptance meaning not tolerance resignation but opening up to what is of worth inside your history that is carried by thoughts feelings memories and bodily sensations but then soon enough especially on a values-based journey act leads to an interesting compassion you're really interested in raising children who can be more open with their own difficult thoughts and feelings and memories, because they're going to have some painful ones, no matter what you do, mm-hmm. no matter how careful you are, or that, that you can reach out to your clients who yes, are giving you the things that they want to work on, but are not telling you things like, I'm afraid I'm the worst mother on the planet. And my husband's going to divorce me and my kid's going to hate me. 
and you're getting in there saying, follow the program, follow the program, follow the program, and come on. Yeah, I want them to follow the program. But how do you think you're going to do that if you can't reach what really motivates a person who's more complex? So mm -hmm. that's what relational frame theory and the things that are linked to ACT will give you. You don't have to drink the Kool-Aid. You don't have to say, I believe. You can bring <laughs> full behavioral skepticism to it. But start with yourself. Do some things that are experiential so that you can see. And then start entering into an, a step-by-step -step process of moving from a place where you don't fit the, the scope of competence to be able to apply it to where you do, and then apply it inside your scope of practice to the populations you serve that are verbal enough to create suffering by their own private events. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, is, this goes on the same realm of thought where as you said we have all those things that we uh we have that list of things those stories that we're like oh well, i'm not very smart oh i've got this thing people don't really like me they never even ask me any questions what's going on oh thoughts words why you know that goes on and on but uh you've also brought this up before in your books there's that other side that that when it flips over the coin when you're like oh i'm so great and <laughs> this is so fantastic look what i did this is this is so beautiful and aren't i the greatest <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's uh, great again yeah <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things i i liked most i think it was in the a liberated mind in here where it was like those those thoughts can be uh just as uh harmful because they yeah. can be so intoxicating yeah. uh and you know that's that's the thing where we're like oh that's the only thing i want but that's the idea behind uh why it's important to accept both sides of the spectrum of the thoughts that you're experiencing yeah with a little bit of what we call diffusion so there's a little bit of separation so they don't dominate over behavior and the concomitants of behavior in terms of emotion, attention, motivation, things like that. And, you know, you remind me, of, you know, some of this in our modern current conversation is gender biased, racially biased, uh, you know, ethnically, it's uh, biased in terms of sexual orientation, it's biased in terms of uh, economics. And so, uh, you know, in both directions, I mean, you're getting lots of kind of attention to how much uh, privilege hurts others, but also the so-called privilege because you climb into a clown suit and it's not even one that you notice. It feels so comfortable. It's just your skin and it isn't. Mm -hmm. It's that you bought into a story and you didn't even notice that you did it. And so uh, that's true whether or not it's uh, all these forms of stigma, uh, stigma and uh, minimization of contributions and uh, also all these undeserved and unwarranted stories of how great and grand we may be because of our privileged position. One of the things that I like to do to kind of address that is, <clears throat> yes, I am autistic and I am a BCBA, but that's just linguistic shorthand for me saying, so when I introduce myself and I get an opportunity to introduce myself long form, I say, I am a human who happens to be experiencing autism. Right. Because I'm trying to help model that idea that like, 
yes, my neurotype happens to be this, right. but that doesn't mean I'm not a person who's experiencing. And, and I'm not a person who's observing that I'm observing that I'm experiencing. Yeah. And I love the framework that ACT offers. And um, I like trying to come up with ways to summarize so that it helps people catch on to the ideas. And one of the ideas, one of the things that I've come up with that I hope this is accurate, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is um, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. That's awesome. That's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly Good. right. And, that, and you if know, our that listeners pain... like that, Brian has actually now made a shirt via the bearded behaviorist, but we also <laughs> have it via mindful behavior as well. And he has that quote from himself. Uh, with the bearded Buddha. It's really awesome. So if you like that, please check it out, listeners. I actually prefer I like the be bearded Zen because I would never uh, want to compare myself to the Buddha himself. I instead seek sure. to achieve Zen like he does. So <laughs> that's what I call it. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Any comparative link to your whole self is toxic probably, but it's a really good way to think about it. And, and when you drill into it, you know, as you begin to unpack what suffering is, where it comes from, it gives you a lot of places to go. But uh, I've never met anyone who doesn't know a lot about pain. I've never met anyone, nor do I think I ever will. Uh, it is universal. Suffering is not. And uh, sometimes people will say suffering is universal. Well, it's, it's so common because we mishandle it so greatly and we mishandle pain so greatly. And probably you have to have some experience of mishandling pain before you're likely to figure out how to separate those two. That's probably true too. So probably in the developmental trajectory, they may be universal, but it's not universal for always. It just isn't. I mean, there is a space in which you can carry your pain in a way that is useful, helpful, dignified, compassionate, kind, values laden, useful to others, useful to yourself. Well, if that's true, that doesn't look like suffering to me. That looks more like wisdom. Well, and this brings a kind of full circle to something you said at the very beginning of our conversation, which is you, you said that you were grateful that you developed your anxiety disorder. Oh, man. Absolutely. I mean, without that, I, mean, I, I uh, shudder to think where I would have ended up. Because I'd gotten into a place where I, I can have compassion for it. I, you know, look at my uh, TEDx talk and the little eight-year-old under the bed who I didn't even know was there. And that will help make sense of what I'm about to say. If you go mm -hmm. and look at, uh, do a bit.ly link with Steve's first TED and capitalize Steve first and TED and you'll find it. Or just Google it and you can find it on YouTube. But, uh, you know, I think I was headed towards a trajectory in which I would have taken the thin gruel of achievement, applause, um, the number of the amount of grants, the number of publications, as if that's what I came here to do. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm a research machine. Uh, it's not a good way to live. It's just not kind to yourself or helpful to others. And, um, I understand why I did it, and I understand to a degree, and I understand, but thankfully, part of my psychology said, no, I'm just not going to let you do that. You do that, here's what you get. <laughs> Nothing. You're not going to yeah. be able to give a lecture to five undergraduates. How about that, big dog? So <laughs> thankfully, you know, 
part of me just said no. And people will find inside their depression or inside their anxiety or inside their addiction or inside, uh, you know, the, the latest divorce or inside, you know, whatever it is that they're facing in life. Often, not always, but often you'll find the seeds of prosperity and you'll find a part of you that's actually giving you a gift if you could just know how to see it and receive it. Whether it's a challenge of autism, sounds like that's a gift for you. I hope I'm not uh, putting words into your mouth. Nope, that's, I, I, I believe that. One of the things I say to my clients, you know, this takes sometimes just common anxiety is say, tell you what, I'll take away your anxiety, but here's the deal. Your kids, when they come to you and they say they're afraid, they say that they're anxious, you will have no understanding ever of what they're talking about. You're going to take that deal. And I've not, never met a parent who wants to take that deal. They somehow want to be able to know how to be with and help others who are struggling with issues they're struggling with without them ever having to struggle with those issues. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> so um, Heather just wrote me a little note. And uh, this actually brings back to some other things uh, that we'd mentioned. My love of exploring and, and going out into other sciences. So there's a, a theory that I recently came across um, called the differential susceptibility hypothesis. Um, and, and the premise of that is that we have a, a hard threshold of stress that we hit that will result, if we hit that threshold, that results in dis, uh, disorder or disability. And the flip side is if we are in the right settings and, the, and, and with the right stimuli that we grow exponentially. Um, and, and Heather wrote post-traumatic stress versus growth. Uh, and, and I love that theory. And I can tell you that from personal anecdotal experience that that's true because, um, and I've bared my soul a few times in, in other podcasts where I've been a guest to some of my experiences. And I know that what I've experienced is nothing compared to what others have yet. It is my experience regardless. Yep. And, and, and the importance of looking for that growth. And could I say that I have PTSD? No, because I've found the growth that comes from it. And if I could live my life again, exactly the way it was, I would. Sure. Well, and that's self-affirming place where uh, you know, even the stuff you struggled with, part of a of a prosperity journey. Um, that space is open to people, um, and you know the data on that. I mean, a third to forty. You have to be careful how you say this because it sounds like you're objectifying and judging others. But thirty-four percent of, of the folks who have potentially trauma-inducing experiences experience post-traumatic growth. If certain processes are in place and it's been shown longitudinal psychological flexibility is a huge part of it and so if you look at the people in sandy hook let's say who experienced probably the worst thing that any parent could ever even imagine some have taken that pain and channeled it into advocacy for example against guns or for uh, children against violence uh, and that process 
It doesn't look like PTSD. It's still horrific. Hmm. And the reason I'm cautious about saying it is, is if people don't have those skills or somehow or another life hasn't served it up in such a way that the, the direction goes in another direction. And some of that may be things beyond your control. Some of them may have to do with underlying genetics and may have to do with things that really, you know, the deck you had to play was a harder hand. Hmm. Uh, the hand you had to play with came from it. Well, still, if we care about human prosperity, we have to say, let's put the processes that we know can be of help to people when they when it really comes down to it, let's try to put it into our schools, our churches and our social groups and our culture. Let's put it into our newspapers and our diversity training. Let's put it into our businesses. Let's put it into our homes. And why? Because people will need it. They'll need those flexibility skills at some point. Will it be enough? I don't know, but I do know if you don't have it there, you're much more likely to be on the PTSD side than the post-traumatic uh, or post-potentially traumatic-inducing event growth side. Yeah. So we've what I'm saying is evidence-based. We know that. We can see it in longitudinal trajectories and in randomized trials. So it's, it's not the only thing that needs to be there. I mean, one of the things that needs to be there, for example, is just a really cult a cultural care about how to reduce violence, how to reduce uh, yeah, yeah. bigotry, how to reduce horror, how to reduce a lack of nurturance. So let's not think that we should just take those who've been wounded and strengthen them. No, we have to actually change the context too. But even there, it's been shown that people are more likely to take the steps to change their work environment or their cultural environment or confront lack of justice and so forth to make those changes if they're psychologically flexible. Yep. Our first randomized trial in the modern era, Bond and Bunce 2000, showed that workers in a bank who are a very oppressed worker, it's almost piecework, it's go, 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 go. People are yelling at you from morning to night. They do not like to be called about their debts. Can you imagine how horrible it is to be on the other end of that line calling people who haven't paid their bank debts? Mm -hmm. And what we found is that teaching people how to control their stressors in their workplace using a behavioral method versus uh, teaching people psychological flexibility skills. The second one led to a reduction in stress, but by follow-up, it led to as much or more behavioral changes in the work environment. Why? Because people were playing small and they weren't going to the, the scary process of going to the foreman and saying, you know, really it would be better if we did it this way. They weren't confronting the system they're in for fear that they might be fired or they'd be emotionally too high, too hard. So I think we can both empower situational change and not forget that that's really important. Poverty matters, prejudice matters, stigma matters, unfairness, justice matters, but also empower people who've been a, uh, victimized and who've been uh, uh, treated uh, poorly, who've had been in the that that you know that shooting, or who have been sent off to that war, and not just kind of write those folks off as a kind of a human casualties that we're not responsible for. Make it so suffering is optional. Ah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Heather, do you have any other thoughts or generally, did you want to share that question that Ross had? Then maybe it's time for Facebook. I would, 
We're close. I'm gonna have to go in and and yeah, almost time for that. I'm seeing some almost. people enter the the waiting room, but it. Uh, what really resonated with, with me, Dr. Hayes, is right now I'm in your immersion course and the way that you start out talking about your experience and with panic disorder, that that resonated with me as, as someone who also has panic yeah. disorder. And it, oh, cool. it it just makes wh- who you are and what you're doing feel reachable, human. Um, actually, somebody that's within our group uh, posted a, a poll and, and our group is primarily behavior analysts who are drawn to learning more about ACT and of course we know we have some of our naysayers that ACT doesn't belong within the realm of, of ABA but we were interested of for this special interest group and all of these BCBAs who, who are so interested and, and committed to learning more about this do you yourself have uh, some type of emotional disorder or mental disorder or are, are, are you involved in the neurodiversity movement meaning do you have ADHD or something and, and I thought it was so interesting that of all of our behavior analysts that responded 82 percent identified as as having something themselves that helped them be able to relate with our clients but I, I feel like it's you and your accessibility and the way that you make this so relatable that really draws in behavior analysts who who come from a place similar to yours. So I really do appreciate you for that and just wanted to say thank you. Well, and also uh, thank you for taking the time away from your family and please thank your family for taking this time too. Because we know how important family is and we really appreciate that. Please. Well, I'm not surprised by those statistics. I do think we come into our professional life, honestly, we're one whole person. This is one whole life. We're not partitioned. And so the reason why we're interested in helping professions, the reason why we're behaviorists, et cetera, have to do with something that has to do with our history, our circumstance, the kind of life that we want to live. So I don't think we should be afraid of that. I don't think we should hide it under a bushel. We should pick when we disclose it. We don't have to be at the street corner holding on the sign. But, you know, it isn't in our interest to create a culture where that can't be part of who we are and what we do as a profession. And behavior analysts, I think, will be more powerful. We'll be able to communicate better. We'll, we'll be more listened to if they can learn how to get comfortable with that and, and have some technologies as to how to walk into those tears, walk into those dark places, and not just say, you know, I'll refer you to social work. I mean, it's just not what we should be doing because our clients are one whole person, too. And, we, and yes, we don't do psychotherapy, but frankly, psychotherapy linked to syndromes is a train wreck that is going to end. It is bad enough that I just think the whole world culture is getting fed up with it. And uh, whatever big pharma thinks of it, it's not good for human beings to go as far down that road as we've done, gone. It's bad for the developing world, whatever you take. So let's you know, put on our earlier agenda of you know creating a behavioral science more worthy of the challenge of the human condition then use the scope of practice that we've got to walk out into how to deal with private events in a way that's responsible confident and effective and i'm so glad that i'm sorry for the little commercial that you're taking that online course hope you take the next one that both you'll see they're pretty behaviorally sensible are they not i mean i have some pretty mm-hmm. basic behavioral stuff in there i got a rule governed behavior i've got philosophy of science stuff i got really early publications and behavioral journals 
And I try to make it easy for people who are not behavioral. So I give them little pressies because they couldn't possibly read articles out of behaviorism, JAB, Java. They just couldn't. They couldn't. So the people I'm talking to right now can. And so uh, we're trying to produce, and I'm committed that we will. I say we, the company that I'm working with, Praxis, and others are doing it, uh, really you know, act for behavior analysts. I'm writing a book with Mark Dixon and Jordan Bilal right now on that. There's another one coming out from uh, Tom Sabo, Jonathan Tarbox. So we're going to have some multiple models as to how to do this. And um, we're going to have some trainings and so forth as we walk through it. But there are th things you can do right now if you're interested in building your, uh, your ACT skills as a behavior analyst and using them within your scope of practice. But you do have to satisfy the scope of competence. You can't just know that something's behavioral. You wouldn't do that with, you know, a child who has pica if you've never dealt with them. You just never, you would never think of doing that. You would go get the careful training. You do the reading. You'd call some people to find out exactly how am I going to deal with something that's that that severe. Um, so the same thing. It's just the same thing. It's not some other world, some other planet. And if a mainstream behavior analyst, there are some who say no, no, no. I think we've gotten to the point where the field itself is saying yes. I mean, relational operance and equivalence-based instruction is already on the task list. Uh, do you think Absolutely. that the ACT won't be on the task list the next round? I think it will. It's already I mean, it's already in our conferences. And yeah. so. Dr. Zabo just did a really cool presentation for us this past Monday to talk about how to practice within our scope, but he broke it down with a task list and then objectives of ACT to say, to lay it out very clearly and specifically that yes, we, we can merge these two worlds. Um, but if you all are okay with go ahead and, and letting people admit into the room yep. and Brian, do you have it set and up can... that you can stream? Definitely. Um, I will go ahead and start the streaming now. And are are you guys okay with us just continuing our recording and this being a a, a part of the podcast? Um, so that way, the I am. Uh, would that be all right <laughs> with you, Doctor Hayes? Files when they show up, so I would be scared of stopping and starting myself. Giving you a comprehensive file. When you download it. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and admit people into the room. And Brian, if you want to set it up to get streamed I'm, I'm connected to the Facebook. live stream now. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we have Dr. Hayes here. And we are just wrapping up the Act Natural podcast. And uh, just so you all know, you have an opportunity. Um, to be a part of it, if you're okay with that, the uh, the Act Natural podcast. Um, you do not have to speak, or um, honestly, we would encourage that we mute mics so that way we don't have any feedback. Um, but our our thought process is uh, why not just keep the the trainer rolling? So um, I'm just so I'll uh, open a chat window, but basically I hope somebody, because I won't be focusing and I, well on it. I'll help. Yeah, I will bring whatever's asked into the room so we can have a conversation. Well, and we, we have some uh, pre-asked questions as well. So okay, once I cool. get the live live stream up and going, um, then uh, we'll go ahead and jump in on that. 
All right, we, we're uh, we're live. Oh, cool! Perfect. Okay, so once welcome, again, for those who everybody. are welcome for for those who are just joining us, um, this is kind of the end half of the Act Natural podcast with Dr. Hayes, and the start of Mindful Behaviors live stream of. Um, where we have some questions for Dr. Hayes and an opportunity to engage in some other questions. Um, so uh, the first question we have is from Jonias. I hope I didn't butcher your name. I'm sorry if I did. I think it's I think it's um, Honios. Honios. Okay. Yes, I did butcher that name. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, which is funny because I, I used to live in California, so I should know about the, the huh, but that's, that's on me. So, um, so his question is, or uh, is what is act in a nutshell in a way that providers can easily explain to consumers? Well, it depends on the consumer and the exact context, but I would say it's something like this. You know, I can see that there are some things going on in terms of your own experiences, the things that are not evident to anybody but you, the things that are private. And some of those we know we can start talking about, thinking about in ways that create rules that produce rigidity, that make it harder for us to learn, to see what the opportunities are, to be shaped by our environment. And, you know, what... I would like to do is to do work on some actual behavioral skills that can be trained and there's an evidence base behind it that I'm happy to share that will allow you to feel more openly to think more freely with a little bit of gap so that you can notice what your history is giving you in private events and still come into the current environment and see what the possibilities are for behavior based on what's going on inside and out. What does the situation afford? What do other people afford? How can I mobilize my behavioral resources to accomplish what I want to accomplish? And that we'll focus more on not what somebody else says is important, but what you really say is important. Because I really want to know you from the inside out. And I want to know what are the actual qualities that you want to reveal in your overt behavior? What do you want to show in the world? Who do you want to be in the world? And could we build our habits around that? Could we actually develop behavioral skills that would make that more manifest, more central, more often in more places? And it turns out what I just said is a set of processes called psychological flexibility that predicts more positive outcomes and restricts more negative outcomes than anything else I could have said in a paragraph or two as an empirical fact. It's sitting on literally thousands of research studies, but it's not woo-woo. It's learnable, it's a skill, and you know I've explored it and I'm ready to walk through it with you. It's not psychotherapy either, it can be used for that, but that's not within my scope of practice. You know, what I wanna do is to help you actually deal with what your history does right now so that you can focus on what's present right now so that you can do what you really care about right now and to build habits around that. And uh, that's what we've been doing kind of right along the way in our fill in the blank, parent training, in our, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, organizational work. Uh, but I think it needs to be amplified a little bit because of some of these private experiences that you've shared with me that are getting in the way. 
Because probably um, that last part, if you have somebody who would follow through with all the behavioral program you're doing, who really view that as uplifting them behaviorally in a way that gives them everything they, they want and the, their family and their kids and so forth, they're probably not going to ask for ACTI help. Because ACTI help is just a little bit odd. It's not mainstream cultural help. It's not out with the bad thoughts and with the good. It gets them to issues like sense of self, things like that. But not in a spooky way. You can take it in a spooky way. But I mean, after all, Skinner said you're walking around with several different cells. That selves, that sounds pretty spooky. <laughs> you're probably not going to say that to a normal person. You're not going to say, well, I'm a Skinner and we believe you're actually composed of many different selves. Uh, so your scientific knowledge and what you say out loud to move people are two different things. Not because you're being de deceptive, but because you want to be effective. And when you're in China, you speak Chinese. And when you're talking to people who are not behavior analysts, you don't use behavior analytic lingo unless you're just trying to chest thump and show how smart you are and get your, you know, your graduate school supervisor to smile. And, you know, so I think we've done too much of that as a field. And we need to, to talk this other lingo. That's uh, more like how normal people talk, but without forgetting our behavioral roots and the principles that explain why people do what they do. Awesome. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And I, um, we now have Jenna who had asked, what are the best ways to integrate using ACT into supervision and employee supervisor relationships? Well, you know, here's the deal. Uh, the, the way psychological flexibility works is just it, and, and ACT, it isn't a, just a technique to use. It's a set of principles and processes that you need to be able to read, to see in others, to see in yourself, deploy the skills that you'll learn as to how to create more flexibility. So you target flexibility processes with uh, flexibility processes. That means you have to internalize it and externalize it. It's from, toward, and with it. So we want to instigate, model, and support flexibility from, toward, and with it. And that's true of the supervisory relationship as well. So if you ever find yourself wanting to say to a supervisee, you're too fused, uh, just shut up and point the finger at yourself because you're climbing inside some sort of judgment that's going to make it harder for the person to actually learn what fusion is about because you're modeling the opposite of what it is you're trying to train. You can't easily train skills we have no, no knowledge of that we don't know how to do. And there's not many people who are baseball coaches who don't know how to hit a baseball. It's just not likely that that's going to be very successful. It doesn't mean you have baby Buddha. It doesn't have to be God's gift of psychological flexibility. You just have to know that it's important and you've pursued it in your own life. And to the degree that you can, you manifest it. And when you, when you don't, you manifest the willingness to call that out, which by the way is manifesting it. I just got hooked there. I just got avoidant there. I kind of lost the part of the values part of this conversation there. That's actually exactly what you can be a coping model. You don't have to be a mastery model. You don't have to be like act man. You know, I'm under achieving, you know, that actually makes people feel small. And so, and there's good data on that, by the way, that's an old set of findings. Um, you know, I went, I should probably tell the story, but I went, it's a, 
I went to the uh, Olympics in uh, Brazil, my wife's Brazilian, and I saw these athletes doing things that were absolutely otherworldly. I mean, we were at the uh, trampoline gymnastics where they're like going up in the air, like four or five stories. I mean, literally, and doing like five somersaults and twists and stuff. I never had the thought of, can I try? You know, that didn't occur to me. It was more like, these people come from another planet. <laughs> you know, so you don't want to be God's gift of psychological flexibility. If you want to actually bring people along, bring your own, as my mother used to say, for stunken of psychology. I think it's Yiddish for stinking. But bring it inside, <laughs> bring it inside the tradition so that you can begin to call out and develop. So in supervision, that means creating a safe space where people can share difficult thoughts and feelings with a little bit of separation that we can have conversations, not just about what are my values or your values, but what are our values inside the supervision team, that we can commit to those as a team, that we can take the perspective of others. If somebody's talking a lot, somebody's not take, talking at all, that somebody will call it and say, hey, wait a minute. Uh, I noticed you haven't been speaking. Is there, you know, that will call out these kind of privileged things, biased things that are so toxic and that enter in unthinkingly into our groups. So how do you have a supervised, super, by the way, there's data on this, supervision teams that are characterized by more emotional and cognitive openness, more perspective taking skills, and more focus on values and committed based action to that. The learners learn faster, they like their supervisees better, and they're more likely to learn the other technologies that you bring along with it. We've shown that you can train things that have nothing to do with ACT. If you put it into a flexibility wraparound, it's like a burrito or something. You can stuff anything in that tortilla. You know, if, if uh, you want to do motivational interviewing, let's say there's a randomized trial showing people will learn it better if you work on their psychological flexibility skills first, because people are more open to learn. So I don't know, I can give you kind of a point by point how to, you need to know ACT enough to know more of the how to, bring your ACT skills in there, work on yourselves, bring ACT processes out in the room, attend to it in the other persons, have that be part of your supervision. You can do it in a very organized way. You could do, a, for example, a values check-in before you start. You can do a mindful ex mindfulness exercise before the, the first person says anything in supervision. You could go around the room and people sharing some hard feelings that came up that they uh, don't have a space for in, in the last week before the last supervision. On and on it goes. And um, there are technologies. Uh, one I like is uh, Jason Loma's Portland Psychotherapy Supervision Style. It's in the Journal of Contextual Behavioral Science. If you join ACBS, if you're interested in ACT, you should. There's 1,200 behavior analysts that belong to this 9,000-person society. And you can uh, get JCBS for free. It's a good behavioral journal. It's actually the most widely distributed behavioral journal in the world. And one of the articles, just search for Jason Luoma, L-U-O-M-A, walks through how to run supervision in a way that teaches the skills that you're trying to teach inside a psychological flexibility context. And I recommend that article. Uh, there's entire books actually on this, act-based supervision and so forth. But it's not just with ACT, it's not just how to train ACT. We've done, there's a randomized trial showing if you wanna teach, let's say drug and alcohol counselors how to do uh, NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, approved group therapy for drug addiction. 
it's better if you have an ACT workshop before you learn that. It's better if you put ACT processes in the supervision. Jason Luoma actually did that study in a randomized trial. ACT-based supervision, not technically, here's how to do ACT, the space. It was better in training just a random protocol that has some pretty good evidence for it for, for drug addiction. And that we've replicated that. We've shown that with motivational interviewing, et cetera. So more flexible learners, more flexible environments, more flexible supervision teams equals better outcomes in training. And by the way, that applies even to things like schools. And, and uh, we've shown it, you know, you put ACT into normal educational environments with children, neurotypical and not, with college students, there's a randomized trial uh, that I think was published in uh, Java. You know, so yes, that's how. Cool. <laughs> and uh, Jessica asks, uh, I would love for him to speak on the definition of being competent or practicing with competency. So uh, she yeah. gives the example of at what point can one determine they're competent to train others and act? Yeah. Well, okay, so here there's a set of things and it's a, it's a, an arc of work. It's not where I'd want it to be in final thing, but I want you to explain why, I want to explain to you why it's taken the time and what are the values behind that. We early on eschewed certification because in every area we could see that once you have folks certifying, giving an anointing, you're a certified act therapist, I was raised a Catholic, so I'm doing the Ash Wednesday sign. <laughs> but, you know, as, sorry if that seems anti-religion. I don't mean that. But, you know, the tattoo, whatever it is, the certificate on the wall, you know. Yeah, but the problem with that is that it ossifies it and turns it into technology and it creates a huge hierarchy. And, oh, by the way, it costs money and people make money. And pretty soon the founders are making more than anybody else, which means what are you going to do when the freaking founders die? You'll give it to the disciples and disciples are not It just goes, it's a train wreck. It's not science. Science is, to my opinion, science shouldn't be about milking some sort of financial cow. You shouldn't have to tithe to founders. You know, so we've said, no, we're not going to do. In fact, if you become a recognized trainer, which you can become, it'll cost you all of $80. That's less than half of what it costs just to move the paper. Recognized trainers will evaluate your training. We'll look at your tapes. We'll see whether or not, do you know behavioral principles? Do you know RFT? Do you know act well enough to train it? Can you actually show some workshops that you can do that? You can become a recognized trainer. You can become a recognized trainer as a BCBA. You don't have to be a clinical psychologist. There are recognized trainers right now who are not clinical psychologists. There are BCBAs, um, you know, Tom Sabo. There's others who are clinical, like DJ Moran, et cetera. I think Evelyn Gould might be on that list. There's a number of them. But, okay, you asked the question about competence. We're not going to do it by certification. We will recognize trainers. But even in the recognized trainers, the very last thing you do is you, you sign a value statement that you will not certify therapists, number one. So you can't be milking the cash cow either. You will not make proprietary claims. You will give away or give at low cost your innovations and share them with others about how to train and what you're learning. And that um, uh, you will uh, come to the conference periodically and share the share this work. And um, so what we've done is we've kind of created a little place where we get to play in a non-selfish way. Um, the certific 
if it's not going to be by certification, then it has to be done by competence. So here's what we've done. In 2004, we created a list of competencies. Who's the we? The trainers, the people who are training ACT at the time. This was just as we were creating the recognized trainer list. Oh, by the way, I forgot one thing. You're not even supposed to put it on your Vita that shows your qualifications, your recognized trainer status. It's starting to change, but that's how extreme we got. Because what we <laughs> view it as, it's like a public service. It's like, I'm now in the group that is going to try to train others in that, but not in a way that you can't train if you're not on that list. If you think you've got something that's really important, that's ACTI, train it. But if you want help, a consult, consultation or something, here's the list where you can get some help. And these people have committed to doing that as, at low cost. So that it was viewed as a public service kind of process, like a special club of caring people who really know the stuff well, but not a cash cow. Anyway, back to this point. What has happened? So there's a list of competencies. This is now 15 years ago, so you're beginning to wonder, but it, we've turned it into scoring systems that you can use. Uh, it, in our trainings, we're increasingly creating tests that will allow you to see how good are you at detecting acceptance, diffusion, present moment focus, et cetera. Can you recognize good and bad act? We've now done those studies. We have a study showing that people who do more training and get more supervision are better at recognizing act processes and good and bad act to the opinion of experts. Those processes have been linked to outcomes. There's a study just came out last month by Raymond Lappenlainen in Finland showing that competency, act competencies predict client outcomes. So it isn't just that you're doing it the way the, you know, the people who give the tattoo say so. Hmm. You know, this isn't just the inside baseball kind of thing. This is how people change. Now, here's where we're going, and I hope we're there within a year or two people will be able to take their competency tests and get scores on it, not as a certificate, but as a number that allows them to know where else do I still need training? And that will kind of buoy people up to say, yeah, you should apply to be a recognized trainer, or you should, you know, you really are ready to go in this area, just in the way we might with, let's say, weightlifting or chess playing or anything else, you know, you don't get a, a certificate saying you're the God's gift to chess. You show that you can move up the ladder in competitive chess. You don't get a certificate where you might with a gold medal. You show that you can do a deadlift done just this way. If you're riding dressage, a coach says you can do it. That's what we want. We want tests of competence that are linked to outcomes that anyone can take that you can use to measure your own progress. As a substitute for that, these things that have been validated, thankfully, now it's taken years, you can see the list and there are self-assessment devices and you can look yourself, how good am I creating act-based uh, metaphors on the fly? Can I actually confront, let's say, cognitive uh, fusion processes with my clients without entering into an argument and trying to be right about it, but actually successful bumping people into looking at their, uh, their self-formulation, their self-rules, rather than just from them? I hope that so makes sense. I'm going to skip the, the, the line of, of other questions real quick. Yeah. Because if I answer Mike, that long, we'll only get three more questions. <laughs> Mike, uh, this, this relates to the, the question you just answered. Mike just asked, um, it, or 
Yeah. Um, if there isn't certification, then how can BCBAs bill insurance using ACT with individuals who don't have an autism diagnosis? We treat behavior, not diagnosis, but to be able to help more people, BCAB, BCBAs words uh, seem to be in a tough spot with insurance companies. I see this is a major problem for behavior analysis. Movement. Yeah, it is. But, you know, it's a problem. Some of it that the BCBA world has to solve in another way. So, for example, can you bill for parent training? Yeah. Yeah, you can. Right. Uh, what if can't what if you have to include as part of your parent training things that actually motivate parents? Can you motivate your parents as part of your parent training? And bill for that. Do you get to talk to the parents when you do parent training? If the parents say they can't do something that's on the parent training, do you get to talk about what the barriers are and to deal with them? Well, this is ACT. You know, if you want to hang up a shingle and do ACT for depression, don't do it. A, depression is not a thing. This is some sort of weird ritual that we've created that has harmed people in the world with these pseudo-latent diseases by collections of signs and symptoms. This is not behavior analyzed to begin. I understand there's a big system behind it. I understand that. But don't enter that system. This is Hotel California. You can enter, but you can't leave. We don't want to enter that system. I don't want to give DSM diagnoses to people. If you have to, to get funded, okay, maybe you have to. But as a general thing, no. But so I would start with not the where we're going to end up. Here's what's going to happen, in my opinion. Over a 10-year period, it's not going to take that long. The family work that we're doing is going to end up being billable family therapy. The couples work we do is going to be end up being billable couples therapy. The behavioral medicine work that we can do right now, you can do diet, exercise, et cetera, in some jurisdictions and uh, will end up as billable, billable around. I mean, for goodness sakes, who came up with even what right now, never mind act, act adds a little bit, but the best methods for building diet and exercise and things like that. It's behavior analysts did that. How about the chronically mentally ill? Can you work with a chronically mentally ill with a BCBA? Yeah, you can. In most places you can do that. Can you call it psychotherapy and be billed? No, you don't. Can you do it as supported employment, supported living, as behavioral problem? Yes, you can. Do people who are chronically mentally ill not follow through with the behavioral programming because of act processes. Yes, that's an empirical fact. So I don't know. I don't want to be too arrogant about it because I don't have a BCBA practice and uh, you have to tell me, but I see so many areas, whether it's sports or organizations or uh, where, you know, do what you have state sanctions to do. And don't just be doing monkey see, monkey do over a, uh, counselors and clinical people who frankly may not be where we want to go anyway. I hope when we get in there with that part of the population that we get in there with our behavioral sensibilities intact. Uh, if you know what I mean, that we're actually working with people who, yes, let's say exposure right now, if you're to do exposure for anxiety, this is a behavioral method. Behavior analysts came up with it. I mean, come on, uh, Ted Ione and uh, Nate Azrin. And I mean, who came up with these things? 
behavior analysts came up with these things. So we've lost that in a way because we mishandled the transition and we let some of our technology be stolen by others. You might have a hard time billing for exposure for anxiety if it's a person who uh, is normally inside your populations, though, of care. You probably can get do that. You can probably do that with children with um, disabilities, for example. You can probably do that with a chronically mentally ill. I don't know. It depends on the jurisdiction and exactly where you are. But you know, people who, for example, couldn't leave a couldn't go to a supportive employment, let's say, because of a fear and phobia, if you're working with a chronically mentally ill, couldn't you do exposure as part of that? Well, Shake your head, yes, if you can. Uh, I'm you can, seeing... right? So I think let's put our nose underneath the tent and not get, the, please don't anybody go out and hang up a shingle or just as a BCBA and say, you know, psychotherapy for major depression. It won't take too many examples like that before states come down with their big heavy feet and start stomping over the BCBA world. So, but incrementally applying the technology where your scope of practice already includes the populations and problems that you could use it for, that will set the stage for the next step. Well, and if I might add, because this, this is a kind of a challenge trying to understand how we can help populations that don't have diagnoses, because that's kind of the paradigm that we're in right now. Um, but this is an educational tool coming from an education perspective. We, we can go into schools and teach skills, right? Yes, um, we, can, we can look for other ways to be able to access and share this information. Um, we can disseminate through, well, this podcast, for example, that we're recording or um, share ideas with, with people around us. And I know that, that we all have the concern of, of, of money and funds because, well, that's the way our society is structured. And it's frankly, scarcity of resources is, has always been an issue. Um, but we can still identify our values and see if there's a way. And I've, I have yet to meet a behavior analyst or any other person in human services who went into it strictly for the money. No, you made a bad decision if that's what you did. You weren't thinking. You didn't yeah. do your own work. <laughs> you know, yes, you can do fine. You can do fine, but this is hard. And even create, I mean, creating a, a successful uh, BCBA, there are people who make a lot of money, as you know, but, but it's, you're creating those kind of big organizations and stuff. Well, there's another example. You can do act inside your own uh, organizational work. Go look at what happens with, let's say, hmm, people like Fit Learning, there's a book that just came out that Nick Barron's has put out about integrating ACT into behavioral analytic educational work and then into the supervision teams and the organizational teams. Ramona Humfar is putting ACT into the organizational work that she's doing. Um, you know, you can get, uh, go to Shawnee Press, don't go to Amazon, they'll try to sell you a thousand dollar book because it's not sold there and they're just fooling you. Go to Shawnee Press and look at uh, Mark Dixon's 180 Days of Act put into entire school systems. That is so cool. I actually visited them that it went from educate from uh, uh, from uh, 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 children with developmental disabilities and uh, intellectual disability, uh, emotional disabilities to the entire school, entire elementary school, etc. Has Act classes that everybody takes. And so, and Mark's in there as part of the process, getting paid to do it because the 
where the rubber meets the road, the actual motivation of the children, the educational achievement of the children and so forth, uh, he showed that ACT and RFT made a big difference. So um, you already, if you're billing and you're worried about diagnoses, you're probably already billing using a diagnosis for something. Find a way to use ACT when it's appropriate for those populations in areas where you otherwise would have to refer out, for example. Well, and I After think you build your scope of competence, don't just think you can know the word act and say it's behavioral and do it. You're going to have to take some courses and there's good ones, online courses and direct ones in the area of COVID. I guess you have to go online and books and all the rest so that you can learn it. And I think part of what Mike was getting at when he asked that question was like, how can we go beyond the diagnosis? How can we help more people? So um that's a well correct- check out if you if you can get to jcbs if you're an academic library you can do it go check out an article that i just published with uh, uh stefan hoffman and um uh corey stanton on uh a new form of functional analysis process-based functional analysis you know the big four if you do an empirical functional analysis you should know that the problem is is that while about 80% of the children that you work with will come up with a characteristic uh, function out of the big four, a WADA style, as soon as they can do symmetry in an equivalence class, it, it falls by half. Hmm. That's a mental age of three or less. And we have pretty good data, 12 month old babies will do symmetry. So let's not tie ourselves into FAs that don't work anymore once people start talking. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And don't distort behavioral principles so that you start doing this, oh, I'm going to get my shrill voice. Stupid stuff like saying, why did the soldier jump on the grenade? Oh, it must have been attention maintained. If you're in three feet, I'm going to slap you hard. Are you out of your mind? You're jumping on a grenade out of attention? Are you kidding me? No, it's a verbally produced phenomenon, of course. It's not the sensories. It's not the tangibles. It's not attention. Don't be hanging on to our our technology in a way that destroys the tradition. The tradition is about creating, you know, an increasingly adequate analysis of you know human behavior and it's all of its complexity. So we need to have ways of talking about things like people running into burning buildings and jumping on grenades, or for example, parents working their tushy off day after day after day in the service of their children with intellectual disabilities. That's not attention. Don't say that. It's values, it's about something big. Yeah, we attend to it. I'll applaud it, absolutely. But that's not why mom's doing it. So check out that article. We walk through how to use network analysis, complex systems, behavioral principles, RFT, and evolutionary science principles. Now, this was written by Stefan Hoffman, who's a CBT guy. So it's not guns a-blazing behavior analysis. You have to look through it to see that how you do it but a a modern form where we can take all of these processes that are known, things like diffusion and acceptance and flexible attention to the now and things like that. They're not mentalistic. They're skills you can teach and skills you can learn. They're behaviorally sensible. We've done the research to know that. 
you know, attention. You don't use that with non-human animals, but with people, these relational operants operate on other behavioral principles and you can augment or diminish stimulus control by another behavior that sits atop the range of behaviors you're doing. That's called attention. You can just use the concept of stimulus control with a rat or pigeon. You can't just do that with a person because we can augment or diminish stimulus control. You can do it right now. You can focus on me or you can focus on the entire screen and everybody's in there either with a face or a picture or a name. So on and on it goes, let's uh, use what we've learned of processes of change that are behaviorally sensible, but then put them into ideographic, data-focused functional analyses that allow you to target and perturbate the systems that have created these self-reinforcing processes that uh, capture our clients, these adaptive peaks, these, these smaller sooner that trump larger later processes that we can undermine the flexibility processes and our traditional behavior analytic uh, concepts, methods, and evolutionary principles as well, just as Skinner encouraged us to do in the very last sentence he wrote before he died. And if you don't know what that sentence is, you should. Awesome. Thank you for, uh, for that one. Um, so we have a quite, I'm gonna skip a little bit ahead in here, Brian, because we're uh, running a little low on time. But uh, this one kind of goes right into line with uh, the group mindful behavior where we also offer uh, accessible yoga. So this question is from Melody and she says, I would love to hear Dr. Hayes' thoughts on the mindfulness processes specifically and what the process was like in developing and bringing these into the model. More specifically, to get into the, the behavior analytic, she wants to, to know what do you say to behavior analysts or psychologists for that matter, who will readily accept act but reject things like yoga, meditation, et cetera, um, yeah. as being evidence-based? Well, there is some evidence. I mean, there's randomized trials for yoga and things like that, usually not as effective as the best, best things that we can deploy. I mean, they're pre-scientific and, and why would they be as effective? But there's no reason for us to like wrap this around. The one thing I disagree with in the question is this, this little thing of, and it comes from yogic philosophy. No, it's consistent with this because we're human beings have been on the planet for a pretty long time, uh, a couple hundred thousand years. And they've been dealing with the side effects of relational operants as a real problem ever since written language has shown up. That's 5,000 years, could be more than that. And uh, we've seen even in the written record, if you read Julian Jaynes and folks like that, you know, that language has changed its function even within those 5,000 years. And never mind the written record, it's happened even within your lifetime. I mean, some of what you're seeing with the political upheaval and so forth comes from this computer you're calling around in your pocket and for the things your children are exposed to and so forth. Now, here's, I avoided the M word for the longest time. I mean, I lived on a religious commune. I'm a hippy dippy guy. You're talking about, you're looking at a person who used to have hair down to his rear end, just sat on hippie hill and, you know, consumed more than he should have, you know, all kinds of chemicals and all the rest. And Turning back to some of that was helpful to me in my life when I developed panic disorder. And unpacking that has been really important in ACT and RFT and, and all of that. I mean, the first article ever written on ACT and RFT is called Making Sense of Spirituality, and it was published in the journal Behaviorism. 
And so I've been on a journey as to how to make behavioral sensible lots of things that are important to human experience. 90 some percent of people say they've had spiritual experiences. Does that mean we have to mentalize, we have to dualize? No, it's behavior, it's behavior. Now, of course, if it came out of a pre-scientific tradition, guess what, it's gonna be dualistic. Of course it is. I mean, body and soul. I mean, you don't have to go very far before you hear that. But that doesn't mean we should like run out of the room, uh, you know. What people are talking about when they're talking about these kinds of things are real behavioral phenomena that we can analyze and when we understand, we can use. Now, uh, what I, as I say, for the longest time, I ran away from that word because, just because of that training. And I tell the story in a liberated mind and seeing these so-called gurus end up with clay feet. I mean, I was on a religious commune and it almost fell apart because the person wearing the, the orange robes, which means he's sw a swami and celibate, suddenly some poor young thing said, oh, I led the master astray. And half the camp went, I thought I led the master astray. You know, no, no gurus. So what I, you know, we can take what's inside the wisdom traditions, treat it with respect. I know I don't sound very respectful right now, but treat it with seriousness. Don't mentalize, don't dualize, and look and see, is there something in there that's useful for us? Take what's useful, leave the rest. And I didn't want the M word in there because, you know, monks have gone to war over different definitions of mindfulness. We're trying to do it in the West now and just use things that only monks used. I mean, some of the stuff, methods we're talking about, people take alms to do that. You know, line Buddhists don't do that. They're shoving flags and cracks and giving alms to the monks who do that. They're not on 10-day silent retreats. It's the Western people who are doing that. And by the way, are then ending up saying things like, you take care of the kids. I got to go meditate. Oh, great. Selfish mindfulness. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> you know, so I don't want, I'm letting some of my cynicism drool out, but it, it's hard one cynicism because I saw guru after guru after guru have clay feet. Joshu Susaki Roshi, the first Zen master I ever heard, one of the most brilliant Western Zen masters came from Japan, had a legal suit against him at age 100 because he was trying to nail his acolytes. So I want to know what the behavioral processes are. And I want science to put it in there. And I don't want gurus. I don't want traditions. I don't want dharmas. I don't want anointings. I want manuals and data and techniques and methods and measures. And we have done that to a degree inside that community, I believe. We pulled mindfulness at its joints. And we find inside that, that it has acceptance, what we call diffusion, flexible attention to the now from this I hear now sense of self that connects you in consciousness to you there then based on dectic uh, relational frames and some things that we are born with because of the kind of social primates that we are. Joint attention, social referencing, things of that kind. Now, that combination, I'm okay calling mindfulness skills, but I want the measures of the skills. I want training programs to show that you can do it. And I want to be able to do it without woo-woo. 
so that I can put it into a school, I can put it into a program. And and why is mindfulness everywhere? Because John Kabat-Zinn did the same thing. We're just trying to deal with stress. Yeah, that's the ticket. Come on, he's a contemplative practice guy. He's not a stress guy. That's just a ticket to get him into the into the work side and into the hospital. And I think we have a pretty good ticket with our professional training as behavior analysts, as psychologists, as behavior change specialists. So it's a rant, I'm sorry for it, but here's the way to do it. Avoid the M word, avoid the B word, Buddhism, avoid the Y word, yoga, focus on this other B word, behavior analysis. Look at the data, learn the methods, understand the theory and see why do these things go together and when are they helpful? and then train people in the skills they need without hierarchy and woo-woo and anointings and thinking that you're God's gift, that you're a baby Buddha walking around. You're not. You're not. And nobody nominated you to be a spiritual leader. Well, unless you do that on another part of your world life, that's fine. But don't keep them all mixed together. And uh, if we do that, we can put those tools into any place that science can go, which in the Western world is almost anywhere. You can put it in a training of the sales force or diversity training or the schools or the hospitals or, so that's cool. Let's do that. <laughs> you know, um, some of the big you. people, Nirbe Singh, the editor of the journal Mindfulness is a behavior analyst. Go look at where he got his training. Do people know that? You know, the soles of the feet meditation for uh, mm -hmm. people with developmental disabilities. It's a behavior analyst did that. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Bob Waller uh, with his mindfulness work with empowering parent education. He's a behavior analyst. Do people know that? So why are we walking away from our tradition just because things showed up that people long ago talked about because there have been humans on the planet for a long time and we don't know everything. There were really good parents who knew how to do contingencies really well a thousand years ago. Do you doubt it? We wouldn't have survived without it. The fact that behavior analysts can now say what some of those things are, contingent reinforcement and all that kind of stuff, doesn't mean that all of a sudden it showed up on the planet. It wasn't here before. Rant over. <laughs> so uh, relating to this, Angela in the chat, and it was one of the first questions, I think it was the first question, asked a very important question. And since we're near the end of our time, I felt like this would be an important one to ask for those who are listening and who will listen. Can you recommend a starting point for our young populations for ACT? Any curriculums or books or approaches that would help our younger populations because most of us work with younger populations, either as teachers or behavior analysts or parents. Um, and we want to be able to equip this younger population so that we can. Well, uh, look at Mark Dixon's work, really get that book on act, go to Sean E press. It's not that expensive. Don't go to Amazon. It'll get ripped off. Um, uh, look at uh, Louise Hayes's and Joe Sorochi's uh, model for children called the DNAV model, which casts psychological flexibilities in terms of almost like roles, the discoverer, the noticer, et cetera, which is easier to explain. Look at some of the cartoon books and age-appropriate things that are in the act technology for, for younger people but also for illiterate populations. 
because ACT is not so fancy. I mean, it sounds all kinds of spooky and different. No, it's like that because the theory behind it is a little bit sophisticated and because geeks are talking about the theory, but the actual deployment. So let's say when I went to visit Mark Dixon's uh, class, there were these dark clouds that were dangling from the, the ceiling. And all the kids were sitting in a circle, not in rows. And they had all been put there because they'd shown tantrums, they'd thrown things, they hit things, they, you know, they punched other kids, all kinds of stuff like that. Okay. And if something came up that was emotional, they walked and stood under the cloud that had the picture that said kind of what's going on with them right now. And it was a very kind conversation that unfolded with direction, very clear guidelines from Mark. So, and you know, if you just look at the achievement of those kids and so forth, look at his data, you'll see that we can do a lot with some of these act processes right in school. So I would look at behavior analysts and young folks who, who, are, who are doing this kind of thing. There's online trainings. The DNAV one has an online course of, that's about to come out at Praxis. Uh, which is the wing of New Harbinger that's done a lot of the ACT work. There's some really cool books you can go to right now that are oriented towards young people. If you do go to, the, to Amazon and you're trying to research it, make sure that you get the researchers and the academics and the people who have been substantial because ACT is popular enough that it now has counterfeit books that have come out of uh, China and other places that are a hack of just things they can skim from the web that instantly have all positive reviews and that teach anti-act because they don't give a shit. There's at least 30 counterfeit act books. So don't just go thinking you can look at the popular ones and no, get the names, take a little time to find out who's actually doing research, for example, act for children. And, and you, it won't take hard. It won't be hard. You can't, it's not hard. But if you get one that says, oh, this person is uh, blah, 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 and then it turns out, yeah, they wrote three books on the same day. Are you kidding me? No, that, that's, a, that's a corrupt uh, counterfeit operation that Amazon won't take down because they make money on it. It's a horror. It, it's right up there with fake news and all the rest. But uh, <laughs> um, I don't know if I fully answered your question. Um, um, I dropped some things in the Facebook chat so that way people could refer to back to it. Uh, I mentioned uh, the happiness trap illustrated um, the get out of your mind and into your life for teens, which get out of my, your mind and into your life was the first uh, book of yours that I read. And the, for you teens know, there's a good I, I really cartoon book that the world health organization distributes for free. That was tested with uh, South Sudanese refugees who escaped to Uganda with nothing but the clothes in their back and their children. And it had effect sizes that are large as you reading a self-help book. And it was done by cartoon pictures and, uh, and an audio tape. Uh, it's free. Um, if you go to my website, stephencahays.com, if you want to get on my newsletter list, click on yes, please send it to me and I'll send a little seven item thing. You do go onto my newsletter list. I don't spam people. You can get off with a single click. But if you go back into resources there, you can get an illustrated uh, kind of cartoon book of ACT that I really like given to parents and others. My daughter, Essie, drew the pictures and they're awesome. She's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design and they're just brilliant. They're wonderful. Um, so there's so many tools you can use that are for free that you can get your hands on. 
uh, looking at those YouTube kind of things and so forth that are age appropriate measures. We have a th tradition. If you join ACBS, it's values-based dues. You pay what you think the work is worth to you based on your ability to pay. It has to be at least $12 because most of that money goes to Elsevier for their journal. But if you, even that's too much, if you just send a note to ACBS, they will let you in for whatever you think you can afford. So we're not here to make money. We're here to, and, and there's a really vigorous behavior analysis group there. I mentioned it earlier, but in there, if you just go, it's like a wiki site. You can put up your own stuff. People just do it. And you can find an incredible number of measures, protocols, videos, tapes that are, will fit your population and will help learn for nothing more than paying whatever you pay, at least 12 bucks and logging into the site. You have to log in or you don't see it. If you just go to contextualscience.org, you'll see the pages, but you won't see what's free and you can download. And by the way, we don't let people know that, but behind a firewall is most of the act literature in terms of articles. We don't put it there because we don't want greedy publishers telling us we don't, that's not fair use. We think it's fair use. And until a lawyer says otherwise, that's where you can go get a lot of the act literature. Speaking of which, I think we're which, close to being at the. Oh, go ahead, Brian. Oh, speaking of which, um, the Act Natural podcast is an open source education material, um, and is is done for exactly the same intent. So, mm -hmm. we want we it's want this information to be readily available. That's deeply in our Act traditions. I mean, we've done that from the beginning. And, and it's other, the part of that is that we don't say, oh, you have to be a particular professional to be in or something. No, you just have to think that it's uh, useful. And, you know, occasionally if people spam us or, or, you know, go on rants all the time that are attacking others. We do invite people to leave the listserv. There's really cool act listservs where you can ask any question and thousands of people will read it and you will get better answers than emailing the old bald guy because there's enough diversity in the community. You know, I don't let people say that I uh, developed ACT. I will let people say I originated it. And the difference is I like lit a match and then other people built a bonfire. They brought the logs. Mm. And so I hope you are bringing logs and that you're bringing your own ideas to it because that's how ACT has done what it's done. And we're more interested in giving away and empowering than we are extracting, milking, protecting, and all that, you know, crap, frankly. Uh, that is more guilt. We've been really lucky to to have some amazing presenters. You actually mentioned Jordan that that you're working on publishing with. She's going to come on and do a presentation mm -hmm. after you all wrap everything up and offer her time for free. So we we have been very lucky to get some of the trainers we've we've talked about to come on, uh, volunteer their time for us, and and then we're we've been trying to give away free CEs because it's so important to Brian and I to to really get this out there and make it accessible. Awesome. Well, that's why I'm here, of course, uh, to support your work because you're supporting those uh, values. We appreciate you being here so much. And I, I did see one more question that, that I think we could end this note on, but it, it's one that stood out to me. And this is from Crystal Harms. She's saying, I'm prefacing this with an apology for the negativity, but I've been practicing ABA for 26 years. I'm so disheartened with the inability to find a space to carry out these practices without being punished. Will we see this shift to engaging in ACT practices in my lifetime in a way that DTT took over for ABA for autism? 
Um, well, I think the answer is you can immediately do it within in some areas to do this kind of work without restraint is going to take the professional effort of a lot of BCBAs. When I look at the future, uh, I then look at the past. And in fact, no one has ever kept evidence-based technology from being used by appropriate professionals long run. If you just look at the history of this, artificial restrictions collapse because the culture is not so much interested in guild interests. And, in, and the reason is right inside the etymology of guild. It comes from gilder. It means gold. It means money. And so as long as we come to the table, not with, hey, we can get another way to make money, but we come to the table of we're here to serve. We're here to make a difference. We're here to take behavioral principles as grown over time by our own field and by the fellow travelers like the evolution scientists into human lives for, the, for their betterment. That's what we're up to. And we really mean it. That's what we're up to. You know, I think... There is such a power in that message that state by state, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, the battle will be fought. But let's pick our battles. Let's create the tradition when, for example, it's routine to include it in parent training. It's routine to working with organizations or working with your staff or working with a chronically mentally ill or working with any of the populations you have sanctioned of dealing with, whether it's behavioral health uh, issues or uh, dealing with the physical challenges, the, the, the psychological challenges of physical disease or high performance or sport, whatever it is, if you're doing it and it's relevant, find a way to work it in because A, you'll probably be more effective. Might be, let's find out. Let's do the research. B, you open up a space for other people to follow behind you who may want to take that bubble that's getting bigger and push it even a little bigger in a responsible way. So, uh, I've just seen that happen over and over and over again. And we've been asleep at the wheel. You know, we've let drug and alcohol counselors take away drug addiction. How did that happen? How did that happen? Contingencies for, for the, you know, contingency management with drug addiction? You know, that didn't anybody know where this came from? How about the, you know, the, Nate Azrin's work on the job club, or you go down that, you know, it's just like, ah, uh, the community reinforcement approach, Nate Azrin said, Nate Azrin, you know, the editor of, so, you know, I'm about to turn into a freaking rant. So it's on us. The reason why we're so restricted is because we went to sleep. We lost our vision a little bit, but we're back now. We have a profession we have standing, we have organizations, and not in a crazy way, light your hair on fire and run around, but in a responsible way, in community with other people who agree, like the people who are here. Let's push on the places where there's possible movement. And then this negative post will turn positive because we will make it so. I don't know if I'll live to see it. I think I will. I think the question asker will live to see it if she lives a right old life. She's probably not 72. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Hayes, thank you very much for making the space and taking the time to speak to us. And mm -hmm. we have been honored and, and privileged uh, to have the opportunity to ask these questions and to learn from you. Um, Thank you, everybody, for joining us as well. And uh, 
thank you for showing us some uh, scientific approaches to uh, uh, making pain what it is instead of making it suffering. Yeah, awesome. So well, thank you so much. Good thank luck. you, Dr. Hayes. Thank you to all Thanks. of our listeners and thank you to Mindful Behavior members for being here. Everybody have a wonderful night. Be safe out there. That virus wants to get you. <laughs> all right. Thank you for joining Act Natural and Mindful Behavior tonight. Uh, again, this is an open source podcast, meaning that um, you can use all or part. Just be sure to cite your sources um, and have a wonderful day and act natural. <laughs>